Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Nedden. Uh, this is a bonus episode for you guys. I know I mentioned on the last podcast, this is not one of our uh, standard weekly episodes. Uh, it's a bonus episode with one of our favorite guests, Les Edgerton. Um, we just reviewed Hard Times a couple weeks back, and now uh, Les is going to join us. Uh, we've already done the interview. Um, it, it, I got to tell you, it's wildly entertaining because it, it definitely <laughs> goes in directions we did not expect. Um, but first, here's a little bit about Les. He is the author of more than 20 books, as well as numerous short stories and screenplays. His work has been nominated for and won many awards. An acclaimed and award-winning former hairstylist and television fashion program host, he now teaches creative writing courses at many universities and professional writing programs. He also served two years at the Pendleton Correctional Facility on a burglary conviction in the 1960s. He is completely reformed, although there's some doubt about that, and you'll hear that in the interview here. And you can have him over for dinner at your house and won't have to count the silverware when he leaves. All right. Before we uh, uh, get into the interview, I want to I note something. I'm fairly certain I was trying to count while Livius was doing the author uh, bio, and I didn't have enough time. Pretty sure this is our 13th interview of 2020. Uh, which for anybody who's been a longtime listener of the podcast will know that that's more than double kind of what we average for interviews for a year. So this has been a very special year for us as far as uh, the amount of effort we've put into interviewing authors. Um, unless, as you will see very shortly, is one of the most entertaining of them. For sure. And uh, we'll be back to talk more about Les Edgerton after this interview. Les, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, thanks for joining us again uh, uh, for uh, a little discussion about your, your new book, Hard Times. Thank you. It's nice to be with you guys. You're, you're the two best interviewers I know of. There may be <laughs> others, but I don't know about them, so you're the best. Oh, no pressure, Listen, this Yeah, yeah. This, this, this thing that you're trying, you're not going to get softball questions tonight from us, buddy. We're not going to get sucked up to like that. <clears throat> so... Hey, so we reviewed Hard Times. We we read the synopsis for our listeners. We reviewed the book, um, but we always want to give uh, the author a chance to kind of tell us about the story in his own words. So if you would mind, tell us a little bit about Hard Times. Well, let me tell you about how I came to write it, if that's okay. Um, my agent, uh, Svetlana Piranko, she's a uh, uh, emigre Russian, lives in uh, Dublin. And, and uh, she told me a couple of years ago, she said, Les... One of your short stories I've read, I can't get it out of my mind. It's haunted me ever since I read it, and it was called Hard Times. And it was in my first collection that came out in, uh, I don't even know when it came out, the mid-90s or something. And I'm very proud of that because the, the collection, the New York Times reviewed it, gave it a great review and compared me to Raymond Carver, who I didn't know who I didn't know who he was at the time. But anyway, it's a story I wrote when I was 13. And uh, I've been writing stories since I was five or six. And just I didn't know how to get them published at the time. So I just piled them up. And uh, so I went back to it. And, and I, I've always liked that story a lot. And so she said, if you can write, if you can develop this into a novel, she says, and keep this voice you've got going, she says, I think it can rival Cormac McCarthy. Well, that was the magic words because Cormac McCarthy is one of my all-time favorite writers. I love everything he does. And uh, so I thought about it, and, and I thought, how am I going to stretch this out? Because it kind of ends with her dying. And so I thought, oh, I'm a writer. I'm God. I can make him do anything I want. So I did that. I didn't let her die right away. And I took another short story from that same collection, 
uh, called uh, the Mockingbird Cafe about a black man uh, on a run from a crime in Detroit. And I married them together and created something entirely different out of both of them. That's kind of how it came to be. Uh, I actually wrote a story, I wrote an article recently for Writer's Digest at their request on how to recycle short stories and get some more life out of them. That's kind of what I did. It's a totally different story than either story originally, as they originally appeared. And I, I think I made something kind of good out of it. I hope so. I've, I've been getting some great reviews, so I hope so. Um, but uh, in the Mockingbird Cafe, I think I was 18 or 19 when I wrote that one. But uh, and I haven't changed the word. Both stories are in there almost completely in verbatim. So I'm kind of proud of the fact I was 13 when I wrote it. I actually started writing when I was 12 and I finished it when I was 13. But uh, anyway, you guys got to jump in here once in a while and ask questions, please. <laughs> well, I'm just all right. So I guess the first thing that's that to point out is that it's crazy that um, so we didn't know this, um, that these stories were written at such a, such a young age and then, you know, later in life kind of married together. So first of yeah. all, that's incredibly impressive that, um, that that happened, but also you have to think about the fact that like you believed in that story so much that you, you, you stayed with like the 13 or 19 year old person's version of, of the way things went down. So, um, that's, I, I don't even know. That's, that's, that's not a question at all, but holy shit. Well, I, I wrote a story about the mother I wish I had, as opposed to the one I actually got stuck with. And this the mother in the story is a very loving woman. And she has a similar background to my mother, but she turned out different. She turned out as a human being. And my mother was anything but. So, as oh. was my father. <laughs> so, those uh, she's, she's my the mother I wish I had. So, well, and anybody who's read this book would would totally understand because is that character is um like the most resilient and and kind of like positive person. Yeah, um, and she's also tough, tougher than nails. Yeah, super tougher than nails. I guess the thing that I'm curious about and this might get too much into the weeds so you can absolutely reject this question is um uh how how difficult was it to kind of marry these two stories so i i guess um the way that you explained it a good chunk of the later part of the book then was probably new creation and the earlier stuff was stuff that was drawing directly from those stories would that be accurate yeah mm-hmm. okay cool but uh, uh the hard times the the, almost the entire story except the very end is in there verbatim the way it was as is the Mockingbird Cafe the end of that of both of those I, ch- I had to change to get them to come together but that was all that was changed the the words everything were exactly the same as I originally wrote them and I don't rewrite I'm sorry don't tell it to my students but I don't <laughs> rewrite they should rewrite <laughs> So one of the questions I wanted to ask was what made you decide to write a period piece? But it occurred to me that at the time you wrote this, it really wasn't a period piece. It was probably pretty reflective of uh, of the time when you wrote it. Is that am I am I doing the math right? No, you're not. But that's okay because I didn't really set it in a certain time period. Mm -hmm. And after it got published, my publisher asked me what time period. And I, I had to think about that because I never really set a time. 
But the more I thought about it, the more I thought it, it evoked the 30s. Mm -hmm. and not that I was alive in the 30s. I'm no, 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 not yeah. that old. But uh, I, I, I know a lot about the 30s because my parents lived through it and told me about it daily. You know, like my dad would say, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. And I said, well, not in our backyard. And then he backslapped me. Jesus. Stuff like that. So, yeah, they, they took money and earning it and all that very, very seriously because they both grew up during the Depression. And I heard all the stories about that. I could I could see it very easily. And where I grew up in East Texas hasn't hadn't really changed much since those times. It was pretty much the same. It's only started to change in the late 50s, early 60s. And I wrote this a long time before that. So I, I guess overall, and we'll probably get into this with, with uh, questions that we have later on um, sure. planned. But um, the general impression I had was that um, this wasn't, there was definitely harshness to the story. There was really dark, hard things that happened to the characters. But mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it wasn't like gratuitous or, um, you know, like, uh, like, super over the top with with the negative like bad things that happened it was just more like yeah. a realistic depiction of life do you feel like that was kind of the goal was just like this is how it was for some people yeah and and i would never have thought of it as a goal i was just writing what i was seeing in you know in my mind but this is yeah it's 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 the way reality is it really is if you you know if you have a certain background i grew up kind of kind of rough. I grew up in East Texas on the Gulf Coast, a little farther south than where the story's set. The story's set uh, just outside the Big Thicket, which I don't know if you're familiar with the Big Thicket. It's uh, There's a guy named Roy Harris that came out of there years ago and fought Floyd Patterson for the heavyweight championship of the world. He didn't beat him, but he was from the only town in the Big Thicket, a town called Cut and Shoot. And it's named that because that's all there is doing on Saturday night is cut and shoot each other. And it, it's pretty rough. But I grew up in a very rough coast town, Freeport, Texas. It's uh, my grandmother owned a bar and a restaurant and a cab company. And I worked all the jobs the time I was nine, 10 years old. I mean, I waited, I attended bar, did all that when I was nine, 10 years old. Saw, saw her, she used to keep a sort of uh, Stan Musial baseball bat behind the counter. And I've seen her many times when a sailor, because we catered mostly to sailors off Norwegian and Russian tankers uh, in, in, to pick up uh, chemicals and oil and stuff and it, it was a rough rough bar and i've seen her many times the guy got too out of control she'd reach over she was a little short woman built like a fire plug she'd reach over and grab by the hair pull him to her and crack him over the back of the neck with her baseball bat and then the, a couple of workers would take him out and back throw him in a vacant lot and uh he, after a while he'd stagger back in all bloody and everything and she'd say if you behave you can stay here but that's kind of what I grew up in. When I was on my 12th birthday, my grandma said, it's time for you to learn the cab business. So she made me the night dispatcher because that's a slow time of day on a day when we didn't have any shifts in port. So it's real slow for my first day. And I'm 12 years old, so I'm dispatching, which there wasn't much call for anything. And all the cab drivers are mostly out front just horsing around like cab drivers do. Cab drivers are usually drifters that, you know, they, they work for a while and get some money and they get drunk and go. And, and I'm not trying to stereotype anybody, but that's kind of the way it was. Well, anyway, one of these guys found a dead rattlesnake and he's threatening this other guy with it. Like he's going to throw it at him or make him bite him. Well, the snake was dead, but the other guy didn't know that. 
And he kept saying, man, I'm scared death of snakes. Keep that thing away from me. Finally, and all the other cabbies are laughing and everything. And I'm sitting there, I'm 12 years old. I'm about half scared on my crap, on my boots, because these are grown men. And they're, they're kind of rough. Anyway, finally, the guy threw the snake on the other guy. And a guy pulled out a gun and shot him through the throat and killed him. Well, it's my job as a dispatcher. I had to call the cops, and we didn't have 911, and you had to look it up, and it was a big, long number. So I called them. They came down and hauled him to jail. And I eventually, I had to go to tr to the trial and testify anything. And they let him off. They said it was justifiable homicide. The guy, he thought the guy really had a life snake. But he got out of town real quick because the guy he killed had a lot of friends and relatives in town. But that's the way I grew up, and that's you didn't call the cops or stuff. You handled your own stuff. You just took care of it. And that's the way these people are. And I know they were that way in the, during this period. So that's a long-winded definition. but <laughs> no, Perfect, perfect. You know, that's fascinating. Because for, for, for mo and I, I'm going to just speak for Rob, too. Like, it's hard to imagine that kind of craziness, you know, today. And, and we yeah. see crazy things all the time. But, you know, to, to live in a, in a community where, you know... <laughs> where that kind of stuff goes down is, is, uh, it, it, how do I say this? I'm not saying it's hard to believe. I believe you, but it's hard to believe based on my own experiences. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting look at, at, at an era that's, that's different than ours. Yeah. Speaking of eras. Oh, I'm this, sorry. That, no, that's okay. This, um, this, uh, finding out that you really wrote these two short stories a long time ago has thrown us a little bit off of our questions. So we're kind <laughs> of reformatting as we go. So it strikes me then that the Lucia story was probably written pre-civil rights movement. Is that oh yeah that close? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That, um, I, I guess I don't know how to formulate this question. Was that, I'm not, I guess not, was it a tougher story to write? Was it a tougher story to have accepted? back then uh no actually the guy accepted it was a guy named dr spear i can't think of his last name he he ran a magazine he was a black man a doctor and uh he published several of my stories and uh, and i i didn't even know he was black until i sent him in but I, he published several of my stories about black people and i met him at a convention or something one time and we met each other and i didn't know he was black he didn't know i was white he said i had no idea you're white i thought you were black so that's kind of a compliment but I grew up with black people uh, in in the South. I grew up in my my grandma was pretty well off and she worked full time. So we lived in the same house with her and my grandfather, who's dying of cancer. That's in my first novel, Death of Tarpons. Anyway, um, she uh, employed black women in the restaurant and in the bar. And then uh, when they got too old or something, she sent them down to the house to be maids and and stuff like that. So I ha always had it. My mother never spanked me. I had a nanny. If I misbehaved, she'd tell a nanny to spank me or whatever. And it was a big black woman. They were always huge. They, I figured they weighed about 300 pounds and were about four foot tall. And uh, <laughs> they, they would crack the crap out of you. I mean, they really would. But I grew up with black people. I spent most of my days in the summer with, with my nanny, um, my sister and I. And so I, I was pretty well versed on you know black people and their culture. It wasn't much different than ours, to be honest. No, I um, I grew up in Chicago, and and that's the thing that you find is that uh, you may think it's a lot different, but really, I, I we're all we're all just people, and yeah, from you know from from race to race, uh, the the daily things don't change very much. Sure. 
one thing is though you said something earlier about you didn't grow up in that kind of a childhood and everything neither did everybody in my town i just grew up in a particular uh environment <laughs> but there were other regular people that were still Aussie and harriet types in our town in freeport they you know they had corporate jobs and all this kind of crap dow chemical had a huge plant down there in freeport sulfur company there's a lot of money in that town too uh, my grandmother, in fact, gave 100000 to the First Baptist Church, but they wouldn't let her be a member because she served beer. Uh, it's it's <laughs> just the way it is. There was. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. like <laughs> Because Livius is obviously establishing, like, this is something that's kind of a foreign thing to us. But, like, I feel like there were, like, maybe tendrils of that in a way. Um, so Livius grew up in the city, so there had to be, like... Uh-huh elements of 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 those things happening around him but maybe not directly to him i remember um growing up at a stepfather who was from kentucky and it wasn't too uncommon to hear like oh one of his many brothers and sisters like you know a brother got stabbed to death in a knife fight like in a like in, in a bar or something like that so um but that's like a step removed so to have like your story about like the 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 rattlesnake story is just like you were there, like you witnessed everything yeah. like that. So I had to take part in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's um. But that's honestly like I, I feel like uh, even you telling that story didn't make it seem like oh this is something cr- like out of this world that happened. Like you just have a very grounded way of saying like factually like you know sometimes crazy shit goes down and yeah and um and and probably those are the more interesting. Or like interesting for your the people who are you're talking to to hear. Sure. So, sure. Um, but yeah. <laughs> and snakes played a big part in my life because we have all four kinds of poisonous snakes in Freeport. And there, in fact, when I was a kid, the only way you could make money was shining shoes or catting at the golf course, or uh, pop bottles, which were two cents a bottle. But we had another avenue of income for us. We could we could get collect live rattlesnakes and take them to the local high school and they had an ongoing science program where they paid you 50 cents a snake because they would milk them for the anti-venom and so we we spent half our summer my best friend and i spent half our summer you know catching live rattlesnakes i remember one time i was about 11 or so and i'm walking around town and i got i'm holding the live rattlesnake it's three or four feet long it wasn't huge but it wasn't small either and some Women, I guess, started screaming and crap because I was just walking around town. I wasn't thinking much of it. And I had him behind the, the, the head, so he can't bite me or anything. And pretty soon, here come the deputy sheriff, who we knew because they all hung out in our in our cafe in, in the sweet shop. And he says, Butch, everybody called me Butch then. He says, I want you to go walk. I'm going to walk through this vacant lot. And when we get there, I'm going to count three. I want you to throw it down and then step back. I said, and I was scared because it was a sheriff and I knew I was in trouble. So I said, okay, sheriff. So we walk over this vacant lot and we stand there, got into the lot a little bit and he pulls out his gun. He says, okay, throw it and step back. So I tossed it, pulled back. He shot it and killed it. And he says, now don't ever do this again. If you're going to walk or don't walk around town with a snake unless they're dead and don't even do it then. But that was just normal stuff. I mean, I remember because it wasn't every day. <laughs> oh, well, something just occurred to me that, uh, um, uh, we didn't really have in our original list of questions, but um, the the thought about it is that these are so like you said, your agent uh, uh, told you how important the one story hard times was or how impactful it was. Um, 
but is there any particular reason that this book is coming out now? Like, um, we know that like one of your recent books was the, uh, the, the memoir that you released. So right. my first thought is like, is he, is, are, is this bringing up old memories and this is why it's coming out now? Or was there a specific reason that brought it about at this time? No, the reason was my age. And when she told me that I really respect her. And then she said, I might be compared to Cormac McCarthy. That's all it took as I hugely <laughs> admired. That's right. I mean, he, he's just one of my favorites. There's about five or six guys that just get my motor running. He's one of them. He's probably the, the top one. Him and Joe Lansdale and a couple of others. Um, so, <clears throat> so I'm going to ask Rob a question. Rob, how many Cormac McCarthy books have you read? Oh, man. You, you did it on purpose, didn't you? I, I, <laughs> I did. You <laughs> I son did of do a that bitch. on purpose. <laughs> um, I, I've, only read, <laughs> I've only read two. Um, but I, I guess I have to ask. You've mentioned Cormac. McCarthy um, a couple of times now. So if you had to pick one Cormac McCarthy book for, for someone to read to get a great idea of, of his style and, and, and the, the, his understanding of the craft, which one would it be? My favorite is No Country for Old Men, simply because they did a movie of it too, and they actually got it right in the movie, I felt. The, the guy that played the bad guy was perfect, spot on. And it was just a bleak movie, and and uh, what you call it was in it, Indiana Boy, uh, the guy, you know, the other bounty hunter, uh, Woody. You know, he's an Indiana boy. I, um, I, my dentist went to college with him. They were in a band together, and he says he was nuts. And I've always been a huge admirer of Woody Harrelson, so he was in it too. But I, I really like the idea. The bad guy was just the whole story was bleak. And that's, that's the way I see stories is bleak. Yeah, you mentioned um, the movie. So I, I read the book prior to the movie coming out because I wanted to see the movie. And uh, I thought to myself, there's like a 30 page soliloquy at the end by the sheriff yeah. in that book. And I thought to myself, there's no way this makes it into the movie. And man, was I wrong? Because that's yeah. exactly what hey, happened. Can, can I be the teacher for a minute? Mm -hmm. You just did the one thing I'll never let my students do. There's two things I won't let them do. I won't let them ever have a single tear course down her cheek because that's that's bullshit. That's that's what's the word for over dramatic? Over dramatic. Uh, it's like it, she only have half the emotion. Is her tear duct stopped up? And I mean, it's a bullshit emotion. And, and a lot of beginning writers use it. The other is I don't ever allow them to say, I thought to myself. Who else are you going to think to? That's that's unless fair. you're writing a sci-fi book, you <laughs> always think to yourself. So uh, no, my students will listen to this. No, they'll say you didn't say anything less. Well, I got it in. That's <laughs> fair. That's fair, and a good and a good point. Something I will take to heart. <laughs> that's the only two rules I have in writing. I uh, very wise. I'd say both of those notes. <laughs> and anytime you note Livius on something. I'm I'm all about it. That's, yes. I got you. This is yeah, yes. This is um. <clears throat> everyone thinks Rob and I are on the same side, but that's not <laughs> not always not always the case. So hard times was super super dark, and and we talked about that quite a bit in our review. Yeah, um, I love your review, by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very um, much. You recently wrote an article about dark stories. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about that and, and give give people uh, give people, you know, the Cliff's Notes version on on dark stories. OK, they uh, they 
they what they want what they ask for is an article on dark stories but with promising endings and so they're not all dark they are, there's some light in there so that's kind of what i went with and i got to pick my own stories as long as you know i had the requisite women writers black writers da 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 you you, you, have, you have to represent all groups nowadays um so i did that and they were fine i um I, I actually picked a lot of my favorite books that are very dark. I had a teacher when I went to Vermont College for my MFA that she had a whole different take on on bad guys. If you, I, I don't like to use that term, but antagonists, let's say. She said, everybody says to have your bad guy like kittens because that'll be a redeeming feature. She said, that's so much horseshit and it's such a cop-out. She said... Her advice was to paint your character as dark as you possibly can, because, and this is the important part, if you do so, the light will shine through the cracks. And if you think about it, Hannibal Lecter, it's exactly what the writer did with him. Made him as dark, didn't give him any redeeming qualities whatsoever, but the light does shine through the cracks because of the things he does, not with a good purpose in mind, but just because of who he is. And that's just always made sense to me. And, and it goes against the, its contrarian advice, which I always like. And I think I got way off of your question. <laughs> no, it was really just kind of a, a look at that article and your thoughts on, yeah. on dark stories. So that's what I tried to pick were stories. That, actually, in my classes, the way I, we teach endings, endings are very important. And it used to be we taught stories had to end as goal achieved or goal unachieved. The character, the protagonist had a problem and set out to resolve the problem. They either did or didn't, but that we didn't know as much about writing then. Today, what I require students to do when they write their novels is to end, in this, the resolution of story should have a win and a loss, both. And that's a satisfactory ending then. It's like in Thelma and Louise, which is my favorite model to use for writers, uh, there's a win and a loss. They win, they lose because they die, but they win because they die on their own terms. They achieve independence finally. That's really interesting. I was trying to think. I think most people go for for the the resolution ending. Mm -hmm. Do you find that in teaching that that's that's the case? That that's well, the, not my the class instinct. Well, no, <laughs> I mean, in, instinctually, when, when you work with with writers or aspiring writers, that that does. Well, I mean, like I'm I'm going through my mind and trying to sure. think of, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, from a movie standpoint, yeah, Scarface maybe you know yeah. didn't do so well at the end, but m most movies, uh, the the well, I guess it's Scarface. He really wasn't the protagonist, right? I mean, sure. yeah. So it's his story. Yeah. That's interesting. You bring up another thing by accident. Uh, I don't think of villains and heroes and heroines and, and villains or, at all. And I try to teach my students not to either. Uh, the, we, we, we discuss two types of characters, basically, the protagonist and the antagonist. And we don't assign any moral values to either one of them. The protagonist is simply the person who's, who you experience the story through their viewpoint. That's it. The antagonist is simply the person who most, whose goals are most uh, at odds with those of the protagonist. And again, not a bad guy, not a good guy, can be, but that's not a requirement of either one of them. Uh, in my book, The Bitch, the guy's, the protagonist definitely does bad stuff, but he's the protagonist because he's who we experience the story through his viewpoint. Okay. Um, 
And I think when you start assigning moral values to them, you start calling them villains and heroes and that crap. What you've done is you're, you're basing your model on a two-dimensional character. And you, you end up with comic or one-dimensional characters, Snidely Whiplash versus Dudley Do-Right. And that's just bad writing. But a lot of books are like that. They really are. And they, they, they see good and evil. It's like, uh, who was it, Samuel Goldwyn? Some screenwriter brought him a script that he's real proud of that had a message. And he says, take this crap and throw very deep as you can deep. He says, I don't want a story with a message. We have Western Union for messages. Bring me an entertaining <laughs> story. That's all you want. And that's all we want in our class. Yeah, I guess now that you put it that way, the first thing that comes to mind is that if you're um, if you're painting one character as a hero and another as a villain, you're taking away a lot of things that you can have those characters do. Right? Exactly. So you're making one-dimensional characters, cardboard characters. That's I'd never literally to the moment you said that, never really thought about that, but um, I, I feel like that's really important to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I totally agree. I, I think it's extremely important. We have so much bad writing advice out there uh, among some of our popular magazines and books and stuff. It's really bad advice. I'm really proud, proud of our class because in probably 15 years, class and private uh, tutoring of people and stuff like that, I've had almost three dozen people get published and published legitimately, not self-published or anything but legitimate publishing and good agents. So I'm, I don't know of any other class that has that kind of track record. And I'm very proud of it. Do you do a lot of new writer courses? No, I just have one ongoing class. It runs 10 weeks, and then we, we take a week off during it to recharge our batteries. And then normally we take two weeks off and start a new one. They've been going on for years and years. I've got some of my original students in there. Actually, I used to teach at UCLA, and I've got a, a lady in my class now that started with me at UCLA, and that's like 15, 20 years ago. And uh, the, some have stayed with me through multiple books. Others have gotten their one book published and are on their own. That great. It doesn't matter. But uh, we're tough. They call it Les's Boot Camp for Writers. They made up the name, not me. And we don't hold anybody's hand or anything. We're, we're tough. If it sucks, we tell you in those words, this sucks. But we also show you why, tell you why it sucks and how to fix it. And that's the difference. We don't just leave you, say, this, this is a terrible, go fix it. We show you how to fix it and why you should. So anyway, we got a new session coming up right after Christmas. So. Still got a couple openings if anybody's interested. It's 400 bucks. We also have a feature called auditors where people can sit in our class, see everything we're doing. They just don't participate. And that's only 50 bucks. I've had agents sit in there. They, they some, Sometimes agents ask to sit in there. I don't charge agents because a lot of times they'll offer somebody in class a contract. So we, we like those guys to join oh, us. Nice. But uh, yeah. So something that's never really occurred to me to ask, but like um, uh, the first thing I think about when you're teaching people and when you're taking, I'm assuming, specific things and, and helping them improve them, um, you have to kind of keep an eye on them for what happens to them down the road. Lights. So like, uh, do you do you follow like the, the path of people that have been in your classes and, and kind of see how they're doing with stuff? Oh, sure, sure. Most of them will just stay in touch with us. I've got one, Megan Beaumont. She's on her seventh book now, I think. They've all, almost all been bestsellers and everything. And uh, 
she's very loyal to us. A lot of them are. Uh, There's several that are uh, is, is stuck with us or they, they keep in contact. I haven't come back and tell horror stories to the class because the new ones don't realize. I, I allow new people to write five pages a week. Everybody puts turns of work in a class, the entire class reads it and comments on it and sends it back and I comment on everybody and read. So it's like being in a real class. Uh, once they graduate, what we call inciting incident hell, then they can submit up to eight pages a week. But anyway, that first five pages, people refer to as, as inciting incident hell, because unless you nail that, the beginning right, I won't let you go on. And I've had Megan was <laughs> one, she came to me from, uh, uh, I had started teaching a class at, uh, um, Phoenix College, not University of Phoenix, but the real school, Phoenix College. And uh, she was one of my first students. And it was a 12-week course at the time. And she got to week 10 and hadn't got beyond the first five pages. Later, she told me, her, her husband told me, she threw things at my picture, everything. She cussed me out and everything, but she went back and tried again. Went 10 weeks in a 12-week course. And finally, I let, let her out of inciting incident hell. She didn't understand the inciting incident. Hmm. It's a simple thing, but like a lot of simple things, it's complicated too. And uh, if if you don't begin a book right, you might. I know what's going to happen at page eighty. You're, it's going to peter out, and you're going to start all over again with something else. Always happens. We don't have that problem, but sometimes people go a long time before they're allowed to to go further. But once they go further, then everything they learned up to that point applies all the way the rest of the way through, and they're off to the races. Then they just don't know that's going to happen. But I do. I'm just picturing. Um, this is a weird reference, but um, that Christmas movie, a Christmas Story, or whatever, like the kid with the BB gun, but like it's the oh, Red Rider. Or... Yeah, yeah. It's the point in the movie where like he gets like the elf pushes or Santa pushes him down the slide with his foot. Like, cause okay, the kid, I, the kid, I remember a different one, uh, but go ahead. Yeah. So like, it's the kid who wants the BB gun. They're like, you'll shoot your eye out. He tells Santa, <laughs> Santa's like, you're going to shoot your eye out. And then he tries to get the kid to go to go away down the slide and he doesn't want to let go. And so Santa pushes his face with his foot. And like, yeah. so in this, you're Santa and you're pushing someone back down the slide until <laughs> they get out of that inciting uh, the the hell that you that you mentioned before. <laughs> I have a real life BB story. Like when I was a kid, like all mothers tell us, don't. We used to have BB gun wars. There'd be fifty kids in Howard Park. That's when I lived in South Bend, shooting each other with BB guns and pellet rifles. And I mean, we're we're trying to hit each other, and we were. And our mothers kept saying, "You're gonna put somebody's eye out." Well, we did <laughs> put a guy's eye out. So that, <laughs> the parents would come down that you know, that 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 form of entertainment, I guess. <laughs> today i doubt they'd let that happen you know you'd, because that'd be problematic it's all wear dresses and stuff now so yeah <laughs> i actually do remember being shot at with a bb gun as a kid like uh i got in a, like a fight at the bus stop <laughs> and the kid yeah. ran home and got a bb gun and came back and was shooting at us and we were throwing like double a batteries at him like that was yeah the, yeah that's fun yeah yeah. My best friend in Freeport, we, we went hunting, we had pellet rifles where you pump them up and they're like a twenty-two. And I, he pissed me off. He took <laughs> her on my bike and he took off of my bike. And so I pumped up my rifle and shot him and got him in the, in the cap and in, in his leg. And I mean, it went through his blue jeans and everything. We had to take a knife and dig it out, but we'd stay friends. <laughs> we didn't tell our parents. Oh, what totally. Happened. 
<laughs> you guys were awful children, both of you. So, no. you know, I was a perfect little angel. I wasn't throwing <laughs> batteries at anybody or trying to shoot people. Um, I'm not I'm not really asking you to make Sophie's choice here, but um, what, what what do you love doing more? Is it writing or teaching? Oh, writing, definitely. But I love teaching, too. It's a close second. But no, I have to write. I don't have to teach. Actually, I do to pay the bills, but. <laughs> <laughs> I understand what you're we, we understand. <laughs> so um, I don't love what I do during the day either, just in case yeah. anybody's wondering. You should do this 24-7 because you guys are really so freaking good at this. You are the best. That's so, weird because we really don't try very hard. Yeah, we really don't. I just, the problem well, with doing it 24-7. That's fine. You have genius. Doing it 24-7 is that, you know, the average book probably takes us. Well, Rob, you read them in one shot a lot of times, six, seven hours, right? Six, Yeah, six to eight usually hours. Yeah. So it's, it's How come six you guys don't write books? Um, what's because we haven't <laughs> taken your writing course yet? Oh, you don't need that. Just read. You read a lot. That's the only requirement. You have to be a good writer. Here's we'll we'll send you each a story we've written, and then you'll just discover for yourself really? why we don't write. Cool. <laughs> cool. Oh, I'd love to read your stuff. Uh, yeah, Rob and I dabbled in in uh, microfiction. I will say, Rob Rob has Rob actually has a great story. Um, that that, oh. that um, I think he, I believe he just promised to send you, um, and I, I believe we oh, have man. it recorded now. Damn it. Rob's got the recording. Damn it! Now we have to do it, don't I? Yes, you do. You probably do. Don't have your character Less. thinking to himself. All right, all right, we're over that. Less, we got it. We got it. Message received. <sighs> what's uh, what's coming <laughs> up next for you? What are, what are you working on? I'm not, well, I'm usually working on two or three projects. Right now I'm working on about five. I've got two, uh, at least two novels, maybe three I'm working on. I, I've had an idea for a children's story, a picture book for years about a squirrel that's afraid of heights. And I, I that's not my milieu or anything. So I've got a lady that writes those kinds of stories and she wants to write it with me. So we're, we're going to do that. And I've got a bunch of, I've got the two I'm excited about are, uh, they're about a, One's a hitman that does hits. He takes jobs to do hits on wealthy people. They want to kill their mate to get the textile factory or whatever. And he makes all his hits look like accidents. So actually, it's an encyclopedia on the perfect crime because they are all perfect. I mean, I've come up with some perfect crimes. I, I'm a criminal, and you never get out of that life, and you're always thinking about how to do it. So I, I've come up with some pretty good ones. If you ever want an example, I'd be glad to tell you one. Uh <laughs> Just uh, I mean, if you would you would you like to tell us one that everybody can hear, or is this just a private sure. offer? No, no, I, I'll tell one everybody can hear, just to show my chops off. The floor um, is yours, sir. I uh, let's see. Oh, okay. In the book, I've got this guy. He he uses disguises too a lot. A lot of crimes can be perfect if you just do a disguise. If he he's a he's a uh, coon ass, uh, and but he goes in. One job he goes in as a black man. He's got black everywhere. His arms and everything are black. And he wears a, the, the zoot suit and everything. He goes to a, a window where this guy he, wants to, he has to kill dressed as a black man where he knows the cameras are going to be on him. And he shoots and kills this guy in front of two black women and a white woman and then runs. Okay. They all swear he's black on camera. He's black. And that's all they're looking for is a black guy. That That isn't the one I was going to tell you. That's a real easy one. But... Uh, 
the the one that uh, I'm working on now that, that I have this guy do now is he he lives in New Orleans and he's uh, called to uh, uh, Vermont to kill this guy's wife. This guy married this guy who's wealthy and uh, he wants to kill her because she's threatening divorce and all this. So he wants to get the money and everything and get the, the, the profitable mill. So he goes dressed as, as a Hispanic and acting like an Hispanic. And the guy introduces him to his wife, tells her he's a buyer from for his company, and uh, they have dinner together. Well, he he has to he has to talk to people to figure out how to kill him, make him look like an accident. He figures her out pretty quickly because she's real outdoorsy. She likes to go camping and stuff like that. So he sets it up where he busts into the LSU's uh, lab, animal lab, where they they're doing rabies research, steals some mice that have rabies. And he goes back to Vermont, and uh, he has the husband take the wife up to this cabin they've got up in Canada, and he goes with them and to, to camp and go fishing and everything. Well, while they're there at dinner one night, he drugs a woman. She When she goes out, he punctures her between the toes with one of the rabid mice, so now she's got rabies. But she didn't know it because she'd been drugged. Well, you have to you have to have rabies a week or so before it even shows, but once it shows, there's no there's no going back. You can't cure it at that point. It's too late. So they wait around. He actually, the husband holds her there uh, because she gets antsy and wants to go home. But he holds her there until she's full blown rabies, and then he shows up. She's too incoherent to even talk or anything. They, he's even taken dead mice that have rabies and put them in the cabin in the, in the behind the, the walls and everything. So if anybody ever gets suspicious and search, you're going to find yeah, there was rabid mice. So that's one. You're thinking of who you're going to do this one. <laughs> yeah. A, I'm planning a murder. B, I would read the fuck out of that book. Yeah. Well, I'm, uh... one of my former agents suggested that one. I have another one if you like it, if you're interested in this. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I mean, I'm Rob's fascinated. I'm just concerned is, is my, <laughs> my emotion. But uh, by all means, if you'd like to share. Uh, this, this one's about, did you see Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Yeah, definitely. Okay, did you see where they blew up the wagon and had all the ammunition in it and everything? Oh, man, it was a long time ago. I don't know if I remember that specifically. Well, they, they blew up this wagon, and he's up in a barn with this lady or whatever, and they're washing all the fireworks down below. Well, what's happening is bullets are whizzing because they got on fire. They got heated. So I came up with a thing where this this other guy, this, this lady's going to kill her husband, make it look like an accident, and he's a hunter. So the guy finds out. The, uh, Francois finds out that he's a hunter. So what he does is he goes down. He's got this lavish arrangement in his base, and he's got a shooting range and everything. And he has him go down there, and uh, he uh, renders the guy unconscious or whatever. Anyway, then he takes shells that he's working on. And he's trying to clean. He's cleaning a gun, and he takes the the, the uh, shells and he puts them in an ashtray, and then he has he. He creates a fire by accident where they catch on fire, and then one of the bullets kills him. All right. Well, you can't depend on chance. So what he does is he's. Do you know what a zip gun is? Yes. A zip oh gun man, is yeah. A pipe. It's a pipe and a rubber band and everything. Mm -hmm. You used to make one when you were kids and you fire a shell through it. All right. Well, there's no rifling. If he just shot the guy, there'd be rifling on the bullets, so he can't do that. I mean, I thought of everything in this. So he <laughs> he shoots the guy with the zip gun, 
and kills him, but he can't do it too far in advance of doing this because the blood will be coagulated and everything, and they'll know that he was killed a long time before. So he does it right before he's going to create this this accidental fire and have these bullets go off, and they're going to go off. And may, some may hit him, some may not. It doesn't matter. The guy's already dead, but uh, it's going to. But he's going to be shot with a bullet that has no rifling in it, so they're going to know. You know, they're not even going to think that it, he was shot with a gun. There's some more to it, but that's the basic idea. So, I mean, I've got some perfect crimes. I really do. Me and Livius are going to be combing like the the local newspapers around you to see if anything like that has happened. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I I've got about twenty right now crimes. I need about five more. But I've been thinking of these for years and years and years. I had a cop tell me one time years ago. He said. Going to perfect grind, that's the easiest thing in the world. He said, just break their neck, be sure you break it the right way. Put them in a car and send them down a ravine into a tree. It doesn't take much to snap a neck. And no cop, he says, hardly any cop in the world is even going to investigate something like that. It just looks like an accident. Well, that's some rep- responsible police work right there. Well, we were friends. He, he wasn't a total <laughs> policeman anyway. He, he had all kinds of stolen shit in his apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I know well, some people. Yeah, he was a cop, so I imagine that's pretty... <laughs> well, he pretty... was a cop. He got awards and everything. <laughs> he, had a, he had two motorcycles in his yard. That when Whenever I got busted, when I was in the life, they show up to court with what you'd stole that was in the property room. It was never all there. Never. Cops always took part of the stuff. Always. Every single time. Trust me. Wow. <laughs> wow. I, maybe it's different now because everybody's, you know, real honest, but back in the day, they weren't. A little more bent back in the day. It's probably just harder to do now, is is my impression of, of how that goes down. Well, this what uh, what writers, what uh, what current writers are, are, are you excited about? Oh, I like uh, Willie Vlauten. Am I saying his name right? I love that guy. Uh, I like Gay. William Gay, uh, Joe Lansdale for sure. Uh, man, I'm I'm gonna leave somebody out, and I hate doing that. Um, God, <laughs> I always like Paul Brazel. You should get him on your show sometime. He's he lives in Poland. He's an English expat. Expat. Yeah. Somehow that we've always not we've we've never actually crossed paths, but like I know I'm Facebook friends with him and everything. So that's that's weird sure that we haven't. Right. People think it's Brazil, but it's not. It's Brazil. Oh, in my mind, it was always Brazil. So thanks yeah, for. Yes, he didn't mind it. He's just used to it. But right. he's a, I could say yeah with him anytime you want. He's a great friend yeah. of writers. He's brilliant. He's really brilliant. Willie Vlauten is is my current heartthrob now. I just love the shit he does, and uh, he he's one of the guys that used to, one of his books in that article you read. Oh right, right, um, right, right. Yep. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm not terribly familiar. I just looked him up on uh, on Wikipedia. Yeah, he he uh, email he thanked me for using his book, and uh, he told me he says I'm uh, he's really a loner. He lives out in the woods or something. He's really he's a cool guy. He really is. Hmm. Joe Lansdale, you can't get any better than him. Yeah. Have you had Joe on? We have not had the chance to talk to Joe. We've we've talked about some of his stuff. He's though, very yeah. accessible. Yeah, I feel yeah, like that's that's I, I'm a, 
that's Livius's cat uh uh like yeah. uh area and he's just fallen down on the job I think. Oh, <laughs> did you uh, see ever watch this TV series The Half and Leonard? I saw the first season. I, I'm a big fan yeah. of the Happ and Leonard books. That's yeah. that's the majority of the Lansdale I've read is is oh, Happ okay. and Leonard. Well, read Paradise Sky. That's his best, I think. Um, so before we let you go, uh, we talked a lot about your writing course, but I don't think we ever told people where they could actually um, sign up or get more information oh, on it. Just uh, email me, butchedgerton at comcast.net. Go to my website because the information I had several articles. Whenever we have a class, I post something. There's something not too far back, and we have a class going to start between Christmas and New Year's. Usually, we start a week earlier, but then we had to take a week off right away, so we, we we're going a little longer this time. And we've got room for a couple, two or three more, I think, and as many auditors as wanted. That's unlimited because you're not seeing in the class; you're just there. So it's like auditing a class in a regular college. What's the but, website yeah, people can go to? www.lessedgertonwriting.blogspot.com uh, backslash. Awesome. I, I'm sure you wrote we'll, that all down, right? We'll get it all worked. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I, I'm, I'm on the website right now. Okay. And I know there's something on it, just a few articles down. I got a bunch of stuff in my book coming out that's on there now i really neglect my web my blog i i should do it every week and i do it about every year <laughs> that seems to be it's odd because every writer we talk to says essentially the same thing you just run and on you guys stuff. are you guys are writers yeah but it's just blowing your own horn it gets tiresome to us too and i'm i can't imagine how boring it'd be to readers there's yeah you got a point you got a point. You know what? It, here's what I'll say to to take some pressure off of you. I'd rather <laughs> read a new book of yours than read a blog post of yours. Mm-hmm. So, me too. That'd make, that's, <laughs> that that uh, hopefully it'll make you feel a little better about it. Oh, it does. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Les, is there anything else you'd like to plug before we let you go? I like plug you guys. Oh, Not with the well, gun, but on your. Behalf. I was going to say that sounds threatening. <laughs> <laughs> you guys. I, I want to write another book real quick so you have me back on. I love doing your show. I mean, I really do. Um, well, Les, don't be a stranger. If there's something on your mind, we always have uh, we, yeah. we always have a little bit of leeway to drop extra stuff in. For example, this is a bonus episode. This is just a holiday gift for our listeners. Not, oh, okay. not you know, yeah. So um, if you've ever got something on your mind, don't don't hesitate to to <laughs> yeah to reach out. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Well, you may regret that. <laughs> oh, it's an email from Les again. Um, hey, Just next time, can we do it earlier? I usually go to bed at six, and I had to stay up till nine. Well, in the spirit of that, uh, we'll, we'll let you we'll let you get on with that. But um, honestly, uh, always an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, love love hearing what you've got to say. Uh, so so please let's uh, let's do this again as soon as possible. Thank you so okay, much, man. Les. Send me your stories. I, oh, oh yeah, we will. We will. Reports <laughs> doing Friday. All right. Thanks, Les. Hi. Right, see you in church. Um, there's no good way to come out of of such an entertaining and and kind of crazy ending to an interview. Les Edgerton, by far one of my favorite people that we ever talked to. Um, from everything from just the fact that he's experienced such uh, uh, like a myriad uh, crazy number of, of 
uh, things in his lifetime to the fact that um, he's got such a unique and, and honest a- approach to writing and writing craft. Um, I can't say enough good things about it. The dude is on top of just being endlessly fascinating, um, a great writer and just a fun dude to talk to. Oh, for sure. I couldn't think of a better interview to um, to end our 2020 interview series with uh, than Les Edgerton. And uh, I, there's going to be some weird editing stuff. So I don't know if I'm referring to something that's not in there. We may have Les on more often. We may not wait until his next book. And I, uh, I myself very much uh, look forward to that. Yep. Speaking of looking forward to things, um, you should be looking forward to our annual uh, I forget what we call it now. Office holiday party, I think, is maybe what, what the most recent um, yeah, iteration yes. is. That'll be happening in just a couple of days. That is going to be Sunday the 20th. Yes. The 20th of Sunday. Sunday the 20th um, on YouTube Live. So we'll be uh, we'll be live on YouTube. We'll be discussing the movies Gremlins and Scrooge in case you'd like to rewatch those and play along. Um, now I'm sure there'll be more fun and shenanigans. Um, it's it's one of my favorite episodes every year. Um, not to not to flex on on anybody, but I will say that um, I did also watch Gremlins too, uh, just to be able to further the conversation beyond uh, the actual homework that we were assigned. <laughs> um, I. Uh... I have yet to watch the movies. I am planning to do that probably on Saturday to keep them a little fresher in my mind. But uh, regardless, I'm sure it's going to be a good time. Um, we're doing it back over on YouTube. I know we've done it on Facebook for a little bit. But please, if you have some time, uh, join us on YouTube. Um, if you want to get notified when we go live, you can go to YouTube right now. Look up Booked Podcast. Subscribe and hit the notification bell. And then you won't have to worry about remembering when the episode comes up you'll just get a notification on your phone but for those uh folks who didn't get a chance to we're probably going to post up links on facebook and stuff so that you can um you can find out and and join us uh there it's gonna be uh you know uh, it's a it's been a weird year so uh hopefully we channel just as much energy into to a cool discussion of movies and other Christmas stuff to make it like, not like a, like a funeral for 2020. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just went super dark, but I'm getting it out of the way now. So you don't have to worry about that Sunday, the 20th, I think is what I'm getting at. I agree. So uh, thanks for listening. Um, do all the subscribing stuff that you know you should be doing. And uh, until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. <laughs>